Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Chadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Uh, in this podcast, we tackle all topics of healthcare, but every so often, we really dig deep into uh, some oncology, oncologic diseases that are hot. So oncological diseases that are, there's a lot of things going on, maybe some confusion we try to modify. As you know, I've had some debates about smoldering multiple myeloma. We've had podcasts on minimal disease and so on. And today we are going to talk about all things Hodgkin lymphoma, literally all things Hodgkin lymphoma. And I wanted to interview a dear colleague of mine, Dr. Graham Collins, who is in the UK because there are some differences, there are some differences between how Hodgkin lymphoma is approached in the UK versus in the US or in Europe versus the US. And I thought that Dr. Collins could actually share with us his perspective and simplify what has become a complex disease. Hodgkin lymphoma in general is a disease that is curable in the majority of patients who come into the office. And this is why it is important to get that right in terms of the approach to the disease but also it creates some complexity because whatever you treat patients with could actually cause some long-term side effects, some long-term adverse events that we need to be careful about. So survivorship is a very important issue when it comes to Hodgkin lymphoma. And I think we need to be careful about how we handle the situation. So Dr. Collins is a lymphoma specialist at Oxford and Hematology Center. He is a clinical trialist, an amazing hematologist. He's the chair of the United Kingdom Hodgkin and T-cell study groups. If you care, or if you treat patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, you cannot miss this episode. So I appreciate you tuning in. And don't forget to watch all of these episodes on my YouTube channel, where you can subscribe to it and hit the like button as well. Don't forget to subscribe to Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let your friends and colleagues know, rate the show, write a review, and without further ado, Dr. Graham Collins exclusively on Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast. Well, it's really a pleasure to uh, host Dr. Graham Collins on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Uh, we uh, correspond a lot on social media, on Twitter. I'm a big fan uh, of Dr. Collins. He'll introduce himself in a little bit, but um, this is a rare appearance as a sole participant on Healthcare Unfiltered because I did have you one time. We talked in a panel mm-hmm. and uh, we are shamefully taping this on like a Friday evening UK <laughs> time. So I'm very appreciative of that. Uh, Graham, for folks who don't know you, introduce yourself. And uh, we're going to talk today all things Hodgkin lymphoma. Absolutely. Well, well, thank you first, Chaddy, for having me on. It's brilliant to be here. Um, I'm a great fan too. And uh, it's a wonderful podcast that you do. So I'm Graham Collins and uh, I'm a hematology consultant at Oxford in the UK uh, better known for its vaccine, but we also do some lymphoma here as well. And um, I'm the sort of lead lymphoma clinician here for Oxford and the Thames Valley. And I've got a particular interest in Hodgkin. So I chair the UK Hodgkin's study group. Uh, I'm passionate about Hodgkin. I think it's the most interesting disease known to mankind um, and very much enjoy sort of leading clinical trials in that uh, area too. So yeah, I'm delighted to, to, to discuss it with you. 
So basically, we owe you guys that you came up with this brilliant idea, give dexamethasone to COVID-19 patients. Why did I think about that? I mean, now we have like forever indebted that you came up with the brilliant idea of giving steroids. Yes. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's it we're indebted to my colleagues in infectious disease who just ran the best trials, you know, the biggest, the quickest. Uh, I don't know how they did it. Well, I, I do know how they did it. They just got the whole of the regulatory authorities to focus on one trial, as far as I can tell. And they went from, you know, writing the protocol to opening the study in nine days. I mean, it's the quickest, um, uh, you know, study I've ever seen. And yeah, quite why they thought of dexamethasone, no idea. But, you know, thank goodness they did. Okay, so we're going to talk Hodgkin. Um, I, I obviously we, we have very similar interest in lymphomas, but I think we both agree that sometimes Hodgkin could get very complicated as a disease. And our goal is to simplify it, Graham. We're going to make it very simple. So I want to start by talking about early stage Hodgkin lymphoma. And we're going to talk about how we treat early stage Hodgkin lymphoma. But help me understand, whenever we talk about early stage, folks always try to subdivide this into favorable and unfavorable. A, is this still the case? Anytime you have early stage, you must know that. And B, if you decide to do that, there are so many ways for favorable and unfavorable, the Germans, the British, the EORTC, uh, I don't know, everywhere. So which scale do we actually use or does it matter? Oh, it's a really good question. And, and just first of all, to sort of, uh, you know, um, agree with you about how complex Hodgkin has become. It used to be quite straightforward, but um, we've had these amazing trials from a number of different countries, uh, which give us wonderful results. But actually, it's very hard, I think, to apply them in a consistent way in clinical practice. So, uh, you know, it's, it's the fascination, I think, of dealing with these trial results and applying it to the patient in front of you that leads to all this confusion. But yes, in terms of early stage, so I do think my, my personal practice and opinion is that I think it is important to subdivide the early stage um, because I, I would vary my treatment approach on the basis of it. And you're, you're correct, you know, the three basic structures, you've got the German Hodge groups, Hodgkin um, group score, you've got the NCCN risk score, you've got the URTC score, and then to top it all, when us Brits did a study in early stage, um, uh, we did the rapid trial, we just defined early stage as 1A and 2A, no bulk, you know, so that, that wasn't particularly helpful in some ways. Um, I think the most important thing is whatever institution you work at, you basically decide uh, what you're going to do. So what we do is we basically take the German Hodgkin score, um, which includes ESR, bulk, uh, three or more sites of disease. But I also add in, and this is, you know, this is my own view, I, I also add in age. So age is on the EOITC score, it's not in the German Hodgkin's group score. But to my mind, age is the sort of ultimate risk factor really for Hodgkin. So over 50, I would also include as a risk factor there. And, you know, just making that decision and then working out what pathway you're going to follow as a unit, I think is important because it's the only way you can then unpick the data. But, but one other actually point about early favorable and unfavorable, the terminology, I think, is terrible because, you know, you see a patient, you say they've got Hodgkin. Oh, good news. It's early stage, but it's early unfavorable. And you know, it, it has such a negative connotation. And the Germans now are moving towards calling it intermediate stage. And although that's not really accepted yet, I think it's great. So I, I thoroughly intend to adopt early stage, intermediate stage and advanced stage uh, and get rid of this unfavorable sort of label. <laughs> Graham, uh, two things. 
one, how do you define bulk in Hodgkin? And B, whenever you say, let's say, let's stick with unfavorable just for a little bit, do you need to have all of these criteria that you mentioned, ESR, uh, bulk, uh, and so on? Or is it one of them puts you in the unfavorable category? Yeah, so it's just one puts you in the unfavorable category. So, um, you know, if you have bulk, and I define um, bulk as more than a third of the cardiothoracic diameter, um, if you have mediastinal bulk, um, or, and, you know, if you don't have mediastinal bulk, the, the classic sort of def definition of bulk is more than 10 centimeters. You know, the problem with that, of course, is bulk is, it, it's a continuous quantity bulk, and really, you're not going to call 9.5 centimeters bulk, but you are going to call 10. So it's a little bit semantic, but you've got to have a cutoff somewhere. And I would normally have 10 centimeters uh, in my mind if it's not a mediastinal bulky lesion. But yes, one of those features. So if you've got a patient, in fact, I had a patient recently who um, had stage one disease, um, mediastinal, not particularly bulky, uh, but her ESR was 60. And that was very much mirrored by uh, um, sort of systemic symptoms she was getting. So she was a stage 1B. And I was quite surprised at that because... Um, uh, um, you know, the, uh, she was also getting drenching night sweats, I should say. And I often say to my trainees, you know, stage 1B, I'm not even sure it exists. You know, when you have such a low volume disease, are you really going to get systemic symptoms and raised DSRs, et cetera? But actually she did. So I've convinced myself it does exist as an entity. Uh, but she is early unfavorable because even though she's got one site of disease, no bulk, significantly raised DSR and B symptoms. So yeah, it's just one of those features. So we have then, when we talk about early stage, we're talking stage one or two. Yeah. Um, and maybe for listeners, stage one is one lymphoid channel or lymphoid uh, area, and stage two is two of them. And you have unfavorable, unfavorable. So let's start with early stage favorable disease. How do we approach stage one favorable disease? Yeah. And not, not stage one early stage. Uh, so whether you divide them to one or two, I don't know, actually. So do you do early stage? Does it matter if it's one or two and it's favorable? Yeah, not particularly. So I would just think early favorable, how I would how I would approach an early favorable, whether it's stage one or two. In the back of my mind, I always think of the German Hodgkin study group uh, trial, quite old now, which defines the standard approach before the days of PET as two ABVDs and 20 gray of radiotherapy. Now, you know, there are some, um, uh, uh, there have been some advances on that approach, which I'll talk about in a minute, but that's a good baseline sort of understanding. Abbreviated chemotherapy and radiotherapy was until recently the standard approach, and there were very good results with that. I should say that was involved field radiotherapy, which is, you know, a reasonable radiotherapy field. So, that, you know, I often teach my trainees, you know, when you're thinking about early stage, it's a complicated field, but two and 20 for early favorable, four and 30 for early unfavorable is good to think that that used to be our standard. That's what it was in the easy days of Hodgkin. Uh, what's made it more complicated uh, is response adaptation. So looking at a PET scan after two or three cycles of ABVD. And the reason that's complicated is there's a number of different trials that have looked at response adaptation They've used subtly different approaches and they've found subtly different things, although there is a common theme running through them. And the first thing that they found was that in early favorable disease, if you uh, have a patient who has a negative interim PET, and for pragmatic purposes, I always do a PET scan after two cycles. Of course, in the rapid study, which we did in the UK, it was done after three, but that just, I think, complicates things. So I do everything now after two, it just keeps it simple. 
Um, if you have a negative PET scan after two cycles, can you safely omit radiotherapy? Now that's a loaded term I've used there, safely omit radiotherapy. Because what every trial has shown is that if you have an interim PET negative scan after two cycles of ABVD in early stage Hodgkin and you emit radiotherapy, your relapse rate increases. Okay, I, I think everyone would sort of uh, agree with that. It doesn't increase very much. Um, in the rapid study, it was about six to seven percent increase. In the EURTC study, interestingly, in early favorable, it was up to 12 percent. So there is a definite increase at risk of relapse. However, there is, of course, an increase of uh, risk of late effects with radiotherapy. We're very used to that concept that if you irradiate the mediastinum uh, in a young woman, for example, there's an increased risk of breast cancer, lung cancer, particularly in smokers, and cardiovascular disease, uh, if you include the heart, which often you do to a certain extent, at least with mediastinal radiotherapy. So when I say safely omit, you know, we've got to think in terms of safety, in terms of increased relapse risk, but also safety of the radiotherapy dose. So if my approach is to take each patient on their own merit, and if I have a young woman with extensive disease, um, you know, mediastinal axillary and axillary radiotherapy, there's a lot of breast tissue there, so you, you do hugely increase the risk of late effects, then I would not, almost certainly not, be recommending radiotherapy despite there being an increased relapse rate by omitting it. Whereas if I have, you know, let's take the opposite extreme, a young man with isolated neck disease, um, then actually, why not? I mean, there might be a slightly increased risk of uh, stroke by radiating the carotid arteries, but it's pretty uh, uh, small increased risk by all accounts. Um, and you're reducing the relapse rate by up to 12% at very low late effects risk. So it's that question of radiotherapy emission in early stage favorable that is, is controversial, I think. So, but with early stage favorable, you said you would do two and 20, that's the that's the sort of background that I'm working from in right. terms of. Or when would you have done four and thirty? So four and thirty used to be the standard for early unfavorable. Early unfavorable. So this yeah. is yeah. anybody with stage one or two unfavorable. I would do four and thirty. And then what you just said is, instead of doing four and thirty, I would do two and I would do PET. And if the PET is negative then I will discuss what you mentioned, the safely omitting radiation therapy, and you individualize that. But Absolutely. you would still continue the four, right? You would still continue the four uh, uh, chemotherapy, just about omitting the radiation therapy, or are yeah. you able to shrink also the chemotherapy? Yeah, so if they're early favorable, uh, I would apply the rapid study there, and I would give them three cycles in total of ABVD, and no further radiotherapy if we're emitting radiotherapy. And you know, with that approach, you're curing about 85% of patients. For unfavorable, again, I would, as I said before, do the two ABVDs, do an interim PET. Um, if the interim PET is um, negative, um, I would then be thinking, should we go for radiotherapy, give a total of four and 30? Or if we want to emit radiotherapy, yeah. uh, really I'm gonna carry on to six cycles, probably of AVD in that um, respect, because actually in the EORTC H10 study, um, there wasn't much reduction in um, PFS, in other words, much increase in relapse rate by emitting the radiotherapy, but only if they gave six cycles in place of the radiotherapy. So there are, there are these different approaches to uh, favorable and unfavorable, and, it, and it's complex. But, but I think what we do have, you know, the, the real benefit of these trials is it does give us the data to individualize our approach to the individual patient. 
Yeah, I, I think what I wonder if uh, listeners might be confused about is for the rapid study that you mentioned, and maybe you can comment how the rapid study was conducted. This was a New England Journal of Medicine paper. Um, this was in favorable or unfavorable? So the rapid was stage 1A, 2A, no bulk. So most of them were favorable, but not all of them. <laughs> and the goal really of it was, can we really get rid of uh, additional chemotherapy kind of thing, right? I mean, Well, it was mainly, can we omit radiotherapy in the PET negative patients? That was the main thing. So it was three cycles of ABVD. Um, and if you were PET negative, you either had radiotherapy or you stopped. Uh, if you were PET positive, everybody got a fourth and radiotherapy. So the randomization, the question was, uh, PET negative after three ABVD, can you omit radiotherapy without increasing the relapse rate? And the answer was no. If you omit radiotherapy, your relapse rate does go up, but not by very much. Right. So, you know, in the majority of people, you know, you're cured, but you still need to have that discussion with the patient. You know, many, many patients say to me, they just want to get rid of their Hodgkin. And, you know, if that comes at the cost of a slightly increased risk of breast cancer later in life, so be it. Others are terrified about the increased risk of breast cancer later in life. And so, of course, we're going to avoid radiotherapy, even if that means they've got a slightly higher relapse risk. But it does require that conversation with the patient. Anything else for early stage favorable or unfavorable that we we need to discuss because uh, you know there are folks who would say for early stage unfavorable i'm just going to treat that like advanced stage disease uh, i don't need to worry about radiation therapy or anything if, if i have early stage unfavorable i'm just going as if this is advanced stage disease and call it a day is that is there a merit to that I think, I think that is a reasonable approach, actually. I, I wouldn't be particularly objecting to that. And in fact, the RATL trial, which many people will know, which was a trial for advanced stage disease, actually the eligibility really was early unfavorable. So stage two with risk factors, stage three or stage four. So actually that, that did um, include the early unfavorable group in the advanced stage. And as I said you know, earlier, that actually if you're PET negative after two ABVDs and you're not gonna give radiotherapy, go for six cycles of treatment. And that's how we would, you know, treat an advanced stage uh, patient. And also again, in the H10, omitting radiotherapy in early unfavorable didn't have as much impact as in the early favorable. So I think it's absolutely fine actually to say, I'm gonna treat them as uh, advanced stage disease. Well, one other thing though I would say about early stage disease is I keep going on about what do you do if the PET's negative after two, but what do you do if the PET's positive after two? I was just gonna ask you that. Yeah, question. no, it's not many you know there's not many patients thankfully but i i follow the h10 study now this was a study that came from um, france and what they did is that if you were pet pet positive after two cycles they randomized between sticking with your abvd and radiotherapy approach or giving two cycles only uh, of escalated bcop and giving involved node i mean they gave a very small radiotherapy field involved node radiotherapy and what they showed was a very convincing and statistically significant, significant increase in progression-free survival and a trend, I mean, okay, it wasn't statistically significant, but it was pretty darn close in overall survival. So that convinced me, this was a randomized study, that convinced me that in the interim positive group, there is a benefit, um, certainly in PFS and maybe even in OS, of giving two cycles of escalated BCOP and radiotherapy. So that's what I would do in that setting. So we're going to talk about that. So, so this is for early stage if they are PET positive. Yeah, either favorable or unfavorable. 
Yeah. Right. So you have a patient, you did two cycles of ABVD and they have PET positive disease. That's when you would switch to BIACA? Yes. In, in the early stage setting, I would switch to two cycles only. Um, now, you know, th there is a concern about the intensity of treatment with escalated BCOP, and it is more intensive, of course, than ABVD, and there are more side effects associated with it. But actually, in young patients, and of course, most Hodgkin's patients are, are young, um, it is, you know, you can get them through it pretty straightforwardly, particularly just two cycles. And although we don't have very good late effects data from just two cycles, there's quite a lot of confidence that the late effects risks of two escalated BCOPs are going to be a lot less than six cycles, for example. You know, so the impact on fertility we predict will be really quite a lot less than six cycles. So we, I can't say that with certainty because we haven't followed these patients up for that long. But you know, I, I personally feel very comfortable giving patients who are, are high risk, interim PET positive, two cycles of escalated BCOP with early stage disease. So if you have somebody with early stage disease, un, uh, we're talking early stage disease, regardless of favorable or unfavorable, and they have two cycles of ABVD, and then they, then they get a PET, and the PET is positive. Why would you not do four more cycles of ABVD and, uh, as opposed to escalate BACOP? Yeah, because um, in that H10 study, switching to the escalated BCOP did uh, improve, significantly improve their PFS um, compared with um, the standard approach um, in early unfavorable disease. So I, you know, I, 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 I was convinced by that study that you actually get a benefit over sticking with an ABVD approach there. And, and, and this is probably not the right podcast for endpoints, but it's maybe just a little bit... Uh, maybe a comment on that, Graham, because a lot of times whenever we talk about some of these curable diseases, mm -hmm. like whenever it's incurable disease, I think folks have a little bit of better tolerance to the PFS, progression-free survival as an endpoint. Whenever there's a curable disease, even in the adjuvant settings or diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, uh, the desire to show overall survival benefit is really important. So. Um, do you think PFS is a reasonable endpoint uh, to make a change in therapy for Hodgkin? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, I, I, I personally, I do feel comfortable with it as long as the PFS endpoint it has long enough follow-up. So I think, you know, looking at one or two-year PFS, I do not think is suitable. I think really you've got to be four or five-year follow-up uh, because at that stage, you would expect there to be a plateau and a plateau generally relates to, to cure. And, you know, I think cure is important in Hodgkin because if you don't cure it, okay, you do get a, a second bite of the cherry, if you like, by perhaps intensifying therapy and going to an autologous stem cell transplant. But that is a major undertaking associated with awful sort of psychological um, issues for patients with relapsed Hodgkin lymphoma. So I think cure with frontline treatment is important. Um, and that I think is reflected by PFS. Overall survival is really important, but boy, you know, it's a bit like follicular lymphoma. You've got to wait a long, long time um, in Hodgkin, particularly now with the, uh, you know, improved third, fourth line treatments, immunotherapy, et cetera. You know, your overall survival, at, even at relapse, is quite long nowadays. Um, but I think cure is an important goal with frontline treatment. Ready to move to advanced stage? Did we cover yeah, let's advanced do it. stage pretty good? Okay. So now advanced stage disease. Do we care about it? There is no such a thing as favor on paper, right? Advanced stage, advanced Correct. stage. All Correct. Right. Yeah. Well, advanced stage disease. Uh, I'm saying ABVD. What say you? 
<laughs> so uh, I think ABVD is perfectly reasonable. And, you know, obviously we, we did the rattle trial, uh, you know, which was two ABVDs, interim PET. And if you are PET negative, which 85% of patients were, they got AVD and you know, they did well, you know, cure rates of 80, 85%. Um, of course, the difficulty is that we know with certainty that there is a better chemo for curing Hodgkin. So if you just look at that outcome, uh, and that is escalated BCOP, which, you know, I'm, I, I'm always nervous talking to um, somebody <laughs> from across the pond with escalated BCOP because there do seem to be antibodies. You are going to get a lot of hate emails very soon. <laughs> I know, I know, dear. I'm going to lose all these Twitter followers. But anyway, oh. um, uh, and you know, but, but trial after trial has shown um, better cure rates. So, you know, higher durable PFSs. But of course, cure is not the only thing we need to be thinking about. Toxicity is important. And to be honest, I was not a fan of escalated BCOP for a long time um, because of its intensity. There are definitely more, there's more febrile neutropenia, there's more need for blood transfusions. There's slightly increased risks of MDS-AML, but it's not as high as perhaps we first thought. You know, it's in the order of two to 3%, but that's versus less than 1% in ABVD. And the infertility rates are higher. Now I've had people say to me, oh, if you give escalated BCOP, everybody becomes infertile. That is not true. You know, six cycles of escalated BCOP in a 20 year old has about a 20% risk of infertility. Um, whereas in a 30 year old, it's probably up to about 40%. And as you go into your late thirties, it does then go quite high. So it depends on the age of the patient. Um, but what's changed, what's changed my thinking um, is um, the German HD18 study where they, again, being German, they started all, all stage three, four patients started with two cycles of escalated BCOP. They did an interim PET, so response adapted. And if the interim PET was negative, they had two more cycles and stopped. So four in total. Um, if they were positive, they had six. So sure, that's still quite a lot, but they stopped at four if they were PET negative. Now, uh, some colleagues of mine in the UK were very keen on this approach. So we had a chat about it. And actually, I've been won over. And I've been won over for certain Hodge, advanced Hodgkin, not for all, but and the reasons are that, you know, their five-year PFS rates are over 90%. So they are consistently better than we see with ABVD or indeed with A squared VD even. And usually about 92, 93%. So better than we've, we've seen. Um, and uh, uh, the duration of therapy is three months. So it's over very quickly. And young people often really like that idea because if they're students, they get back to university. If they're, you know, workers, they get back to work and earn a living. Uh, you know, getting stuff over in three months is very attractive. And although we're used to, to the fact that there is more chemo intensity, there is, there's actually significantly less anthracycline, a lot less anthracycline and escalated BCOP than ABVD. So your cardiac morbidity is almost certainly less uh, with that regime. So what I do, armed with the knowledge that ABVD cures many people and is has a lower toxicity, but is a longer duration of therapy, uh, versus escalated BCOP, which cures more people, is over more quickly, but has more acute toxicities and possibly more late toxicities, but with four cycles, probably less. I discuss it with the patient. And here I do talk to them about their dreaded IPS. In other words, the good old Hassan Cleaver index, which is you know not a brilliant index. It's clinical risk score. But in the rattle trial, those with a higher IPS, three plus, they had a worse overall survival than those with a lower IPS. So I do just say to my patients that, you know, the IPS is irrelevant as far as we can tell for escalated BCOP, just doesn't really matter if you're low or high, the outcomes are pretty much the same. So if that patient is high IPS, 
I do talk much more seriously to them about starting with escalated BCOP, whereas if they're low IPS, I, you know, I feel much more comfortable starting with APVD. But Graham, and again, why, why, but why, just to, no, I hear you, but um, let's play devil's advocate. So yeah, please do. Why not start with the ABVD, right? Because you have 85% chance of being PET negative after two mm. cycles, and then you go to AVD and you're done. And, and, you know, and why not do the two cycles of ABVD and be PET positive, after mm. two cycles, which is in that 15%, then maybe move to the escalated beer cup. Why can't you do that? Mm. But simply because it seems that that doesn't rescue the poorest players. So again, in the rat, that's exactly what the rattle study did. And yet the PFS um, for those who were, were um, interim pet positive and received ABV, received escalated B cop was less than 70%. You were, you were down in the 60, 65% which for Hodgkin is a really quite poor outcome. Now, it was mainly the Doville 5s that drove that. The Doville 4s were, so the, the interim pet positives, but only just pet positives, uh, were, were less uh, high risk. But again, if you look at um, uh, the German Hodgkin study group, even those pet positive patients didn't seem to do that much worse when you gave them the full six cycles of escalated BCOP. So you do definitely cure more patients and um, using escalated BCOP up front, some that you can't rescue by giving escalated BCOP later. Um, you know, the Germans have this term, the Kairos principle, which basically means go in hard early. It's essentially what, you know, what they're I mean. Germans, you know, how they are Germans. Uh, they are indeed. And for some patients, you know, that is the right way forward. The problem is, and boy, oh boy, I wish we had this, you know, we just don't have good prognostic scores for patients before we start treatment. So of course, you know, it'd be really nice to know, to, to say to a patient, you'll do fine with ABVD. Oh no, you really need escalated BCOP. You know, we just don't have that yet. So what do I do? I discuss it with the patient. And again, I, I get some patients, sometimes I'm really surprised by the passion that a patient will say, give me the escalated BCOP. You know, I want to be cured. Um, well, and I, don't I, mean, I, think, I think it's a little bit, I mean, my bias is to be honest and not being argumentative, but I do think it's very difficult for patients to make that decision, honestly. It it's just, it's, just it um, it's how we frame it, right? I mean, I yeah, think yeah. that, you know, I mean, what, what do patients know about, as much as informed they are, the complexity of these trials, Escalade, BACOP, PFS, I mean, it's just very difficult to put it on them, no matter how much you try to explain. I, I hear what you're saying. I just don't feel it will ever be, they will always follow your lead. Um, no, you quite, yeah, yeah. But we, you, you mentioned about the A-squared VD. Mm. So this is a new thing. Well, not new now, but it's been like a couple of several years since it came on. It was proposed to be better than ABVD as a regimen. And I think there's a whole lot of controversy uh, and editorials and whether this is true or not and all of that stuff. And there was probably a recent update on, on that particular trial. Did this, does this change? your decision about escalate BACOP. So let's say you decide, okay, I'm not going to do ABVD. I'm going to start with AAVD, which you may hypothesize it's better or not. So A, what is your thought about AAVD compared to ABVD? And would that alter your approach to advanced stage disease? Yeah. So, I mean, first, just a caveat, you know, us in, us in England, it's not actually reimbursed, so I can't actually use it, but, um, <laughs> but I put, but I put a lot of patients into the trial 
uh, echelon one. And, you know, certainly I've commentated a lot on the outcome of the study. So I think, you know, what, what did the trial show? I, I was a little bit disappointed in the trial. Um, it showed a modest improvement in patients with stage three to four disease in terms of its primary endpoint, which was modified PFS. Now, part of the controversy was this awful modified PFS, um, but actually they have now presented the proper PFS results and they're pretty similar. So I have to say I'm a bit less worried about their primary endpoint now than I was. Um, it, it didn't get up to escalated BCOP levels. Um, you know, it, so the, the, the PFS was nowhere near the 90% a plus mark, which escalated BCOP has always shown. Um, but sure, it was slightly higher than ABVD. So personally, if I could use uh, AAVD, I would use it in my older patients. And what do I mean by that? I sort of mean over 40, uh, you know, 40 to, to, I don't know, maybe 70, where I, I get it, you know, I wouldn't use escalated BCOP because uh, it gets too toxic as you get older. I get nervous about using ABVD once patients get over 60. So great, I'd love to swap out the bleomycin and give A squared VD, uh, particularly for the stage fours, um, but also for the stage threes if I could. So that's where I would use it if I were able. And I, I, I have used it occasionally in, in private practice, but private practice in England is pretty small. So I think the debate is for advanced stage disease, there are two issues I would like to ask. Well, the debate is, do you start with Escalade, be a cop and, and move forward? Uh, the argument that we hear in the US at least across the pond is that there is no overall survival difference between ABVD and Escalade BACOP, and I avoid toxicity of Escalade BACOP, and if the ABVD patient relapses, then I can salvage that with autologous stem cell transplant. Um, is this, uh, I don't know, is this a too simplistic view of the approach? No, I mean, again, no. And this is the beautiful thing about Hodgkin's, you know, there are multiple ways to approach it. Um, and I think that's a perfectly, perfectly reasonable approach, followed by many people around the world. Um, and, and I hear what you're saying about the sort of shared decision making. This is the whole thing about involving the patient in the decision. But I also think it's beholden on us as clinicians to, to try and explain risk to patients. And it is a real challenge. But you are quite right. Patients often do turn to you and say, well, you're the expert, don't you tell me. Um, and that's why in, you know, the way I practice Hodgkin is that's where I look to the IPSS and say, look, those higher risk patients, you know, I'm pretty convinced that there is a worse overall, overall survival following an ABVD approach in higher IPS compared to lower IPS. So therefore, I would in that high risk patient group be suggesting that initial escalated BCOP approach. It's not that there's a randomized trial that shows an overall survival advantage. There isn't. You're quite right. There is no single trial that shows that. Uh, and perhaps we won't get into the meta-analysis data because that's quite controversial, but, um, and I'm not sure I um, uh, particularly go with it either, but, um, but the, there is no individual trial saying escalated BCOP gives a longer overall survival than ABVD. But you know, in the higher risk patients, we know that you do worse in terms of overall survival with ABVD compared to the lower risk patients, whereas that difference in risk does not stand when you give escalated BCOP up front. So it's a bit of a convoluted way uh, around it, but that's why I'm confident giving escalated BCOP. The one other thing I would say is I don't actually give escalated BCOP. I give escalated BCOP DAC. So I, I switch out the procarbazine for decarbazine, which, it, okay, isn't evidence-based, but um, the Germans did this for their COP to COPDAC regime in children years ago and showed complete equivalence with decarbazine. 
and a much lower impact on gonadotoxicity. toxicity. So in the UK as a whole, we've sort of made that switch after a lot of debate and we're collecting our data and presenting it at various conferences. And so far, it's completely mirror mirroring the German Hodgkin's study group B escalated BCOP data. So just a small caveat there. So to recap, uh, for uh, advanced stage disease, if they have a lower prognostic score, the IPS, and, and this is a, a various clinical factors um, that usually we yeah. have available on patients, um, then you would do ABVD to start. Yeah. It's yeah. Really higher risk, so four, four and above, where you really would do the escalated uh, BACOP. Um, That's where I would do when you do the escalated BACOP, you do the interim PET after two, yep. and you do two only more if it's negative, and you do four more if it's positive. Yeah. Uh, you've been doing this for a couple of years now. I mean, is this, uh, yeah? Yeah. You're, so you're collecting some data prospectively, or? That's right. So we are as a UK. I mean, I have to say, you know, in, in uh, Thames Valley, where I work, we're sort of moderate escalated BCOP DAC users. Uh, my colleague in the east of England, so Cambridge way, he loves it and he's given far more than I have. So, um, and there are other colleagues around the UK, you know, we vary quite a lot around the UK what our approach is to advanced stage Hodgkin's. So, but we're collecting the data absolutely uh, in a sort of rolling audit, if I can put it like that, um, to make sure we're, we're, you know, we're still maintaining those very good results from the German trials. Is there a role, so somebody with advanced stage disease, but there are areas where there was bulky disease. Uh, is there a role for radiotherapy to advance stage disease to areas of initial bulk? Mm. So I think there's a shrinking role, of a really quite small role now for radiotherapy in advanced stage disease. Um, and, you know, we've been helped by the Italians who um, presented a study, a randomized study of patients with bulky disease who were interim PET negative after two cycles of ABVD, and they were randomized to radiotherapy or not at the end of their six cycles of chemo, and there was no difference um, in outcome. The, the caveat there though, is it was small numbers of patients. And in fact, I, I talked to a trial statistician to sort of get a sense of um, you know, how reliable we can trust those results. And she was really quite disparaging, saying, actually, if you really want to show statistically that there is no difference, you're going to need to randomize 700, 800 patients, which, of course, you'll never do in a trial. However, it's still good data to, that sort of reassures us, I think, that emitting radiotherapy and interim PET ABVD-treated patients is a safe thing to do. So I rarely, I have to say, would recommend radiotherapy to those interim PET negative patients. Interim PET positive is different. We know they're higher risk. And particularly if they've got PET positives at the end of their treatment, I probably would be irradiating those residual PET positive lesions. But that's that's quite an unusual situation. So, Graham, I have a question, and I'll tell you why I'm asking. Uh, it's more of like a lead-in question. But um, what what do you quote your patients about treatment-related mortality with escalated vehicle? Yeah, so TRM, it depends on their age and fitness, but if they're sort of, you know, less than 40 and fit, uh, I would be quoting less than 1%. Uh, it's really very low. As soon as they get, though, into 40s, 50s and start having hypertension, diabetes, it goes up. So I would never give it to somebody over 60. I almost never give it to somebody over 50. And in somebody over 40 with comorbidities, I would be quoting, you know, up to 5% TRM and I would be nervous. So I do really reserve it for my younger, fitter patients. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, 
I mean, that's always the concern that the treatment uh, could be uh, sometimes worse than the actual. Oh, absolutely. And I did have a patient die on escalated BCOP DAC. Um, and it, that really did actually shake me up. And, um, you know, but she was 51. Um, she had some comorbidities and that really stung me, actually, and has, has certainly reduced the um, patient group that I would give it in. But, you know, again, with this prospective data that we're collecting in the UK, there's quite a lot of patients now. I can't remember the exact number, I'm afraid, but certainly getting into the hundreds. Um, and that was, as far as I'm aware, the only treatment related death. So it's, it's you know, you've got to be cautious. They, these are intensive treatments, but, um, you know, in the right patients, young, fit patients, it's pretty well tolerated. So there's a lot of uh, these new treatments that we hear about in terms of Hodgkin, right? Yeah. And checkpoint inhibitors. And, and I think, uh, uh, you know, honestly, this probably deserves one, uh, a different podcast by itself. Uh, what we talked about is kind of plain old chemotherapy, ABVD, AVD, AAVD, and escalated BACOP. We haven't really talked about all of these novel approaches. Um, my first question is, are they, are any of them ready for prime time uh, in terms mm -hmm. of in clinical care? And, and B, uh, it, you know, if not, uh, which, which are the approaches that's really capturing your attention that you think, you know, maybe within a year or a year and a half, it might be widely adopted? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. So immunotherapy, I think, is fascinating in Hodgkin. And, and you know, a, a, a fact that struck me quite recently was when somebody quite rightly said that, you know, PD-1 inhibitors work better in Hodgkin than in any other cancer. Uh, you know, the response rates are just a lot higher. But of course, we haven't incorporated them into frontline treatment because chemo works really, really well. So there is a high bar. And obviously, if we are going to incorporate PD-1 inhibitors into the frontline, there needs to be some additional benefit, you know, either an increased cure rate or some way of reducing the overall burden of toxicity, perhaps reducing chemo, maybe radiotherapy uh, toxicity. So there needs to be some sort of benefit for doing it. Um, but I think I think there can be. I mean, the, the, the group that I would highlight again is the older patients. You know, we know they do less well. We know they tolerate chemo less well. They have more chemo breaks, less intensive treatment, worse PFS rates, higher mortality rates. So, you know, they, they do less well. And I think, you know, to try and incorporate a PD-1 inhibitor approach, there's a number of ways you could do this in an older patient group in order to reduce the chemo burden whilst maintaining or in, even improving, hopefully, the cure rate, I, you know, is that to me is the area that we need to be focusing on with the immunotherapy drugs frontline. Now, whether you do, you know, the two sort of approaches are, do you do AVD plus N, nivolumab or P, pembrolizumab or one of the others, or do you go PD-1 inhibitor first and monotherapy and then chemo afterwards? Um, uh, you know, difficult. It's hard to say. There's this sort of theory that by giving PD-1 inhibitor first, you might chemosensitize to subsequent treatment. And, you know, if, you're, if your immunotherapy is working by stimulating your immune system, do you really want to be using chemo alongside it that sort of reduces your immune system? Maybe it's going to mean that PD-1 doesn't work as well. So there's all these sorts of theoretical um, concerns. I mean, I, you know, the, the, the um, I'm very interested in older patients using an approach of PD-1 inhibitor first, and then those who are responding really well reduce the chemotherapy burden. And to test that in the frontline trial, I think could be really, really interesting. Incorporating it into younger, fitter patients, sure, ultimately maybe, but we've got to be really careful. We're not just swapping one toxicity for another one, maybe even worse. Um, 
without any significant benefit. That's the danger, I think, of incorporating these drugs too quickly. I haven't heard you say anything about brintuximab bidotin in frontline therapy. Yeah, well, that's as I say, that's largely because we 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 um, can't use a sort of echelon one approach. I mean, in older patients, um, you know, there there is some phase two, so single arm data published where you sort of sandwich AVD around um, a sort of pre-phase of brentuximab and then a, a short consolidation phase of brentuximab. And yeah, you know, the outcomes of that is not randomised, but the outcomes of that were interesting. Um, so I think. Brentuximab may have a role in older patients. You know, Brentuximab plus decarbazine alone seem to be pretty good in older, frailer patients um, in, again, some phase two data that we've seen. So I think BV in older patients certainly can have a role, but we know the toxicities, we know the neuropathy. And actually, when you use BV in very old patients, so we, we did a study in the chemo unfit group in the UK called Brevity, there was really quite a lot of toxicity. So it's the old adage that, you know, um, chemo-free, well, I'm not sure you'd call BV chemo-free, but chemo-free is not always toxicity-free. Um, that is a very good point. Actually, I, I, always, uh, I always like to remind people just because a drug is oral or sub-Q doesn't mean it's really toxicity-free. Always <laughs> this. Yeah, there's a myth that it's, if it's IV, it's chemotherapy. If it's not IV, then it's, you know, God sent. <laughs> but that, that's interesting. So are there any... Like from, I know you mentioned general approach, but um, is there anything that is close to being prime time, you think, or is it all investigational? I see a lot of phase one slash twos published here and there, and, and they're great, uh, proof of concept and all of that. Mm. But I don't know, anything that appears to be almost there to change? Well, I mean, in the ref in the relapsed refractory setting, which I appreciate we're not getting onto too much, but, you know, the, the Pembro GDP, um, GVD, I beg your pardon, phase two data was spectacularly good. I mean, again, it's phase two. And the, the constant frustration I have in particularly relapsed Hodgkin trials is the lack of randomized data. And, you know, for someone like me working in a socialized healthcare system, we need these trials. You know, I, I don't quite know how the US system works, but I get the impression you don't always need randomized trials. I listen to my, uh, I have a podcast on the single payer system. I actually am interviewing someone who worked in the UK and worked right. By the time this airs, the episode have been aired. It's coming right. out. It's coming. It's it's it it airs um, September twenty first. Yeah, I'll listen out for that. But we need these randomised trials to get reimbursement um, in socialised healthcare systems. So you know, prime time. I'd love for uh, you know um, PD one inhibition based combinations, frontline relapse to be tested in a randomised trial because that has the potential to immediately change standard of care. In frontline, you know, we've got the US study comparing AVD brentuximab with AVD nivolumab. So I guess if that's positive, that will be interesting. The problem we will have in the UK is we don't, is AVD brentuximab isn't funded. And NICE, you know, which is the organization that assesses what we can use in the NHS, they, their first question is, did the trial use a relevant comparator? And so, of course, the answer to that for UK practice is no, it didn't. Um, so quite whether we'll ever get AVDN based on that study uh, is an open question. I think we've covered a lot. We've talked about early stage, advanced stage disease. Maybe in the last five minutes, I, I want to spend just a just few minutes about survivorship, not to say mm. it's not really important. But um, I think we all know that because you cure a large percentage of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma, and, um, you know, we have to deal um, uh, with the problems of survivorship. And that's why 
minimizing toxicity is important. And I think Graham, you alluded to, uh, as you were describing certain things, you talked about AML, MDS, you talked about fertility, you talked about things that are very relevant to survivorship. So I don't know, maybe you can share with us to the extent that you, you can, what's going on in that area and what are the issues uh, how in the UK, at least, you're dealing with this? Is there a program for Hodgkin lymphoma survivors in terms of follow-up and so on? I think it's important for Hodgkin more than a lot of other diseases. Yeah, I, com- I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, we're, we're, we're certainly imperfect in the UK in how we manage patients. There are certain programs. So for the, for the I think you call it AYA, we tend to call it TYA, teenage and young adult. But for, the, for that population... Um, there is a, a particular sort of survivorship program that um, it, you can feed patients into. So there are late effects clinics um, that a patient treated under the age of 25 can get fed into, and they're seen or reviewed by telephone every three years. So it's quite low, you know, quite light touch. And they can do things like, you know, if there's any sort of symptoms, they can arrange echoes, they make sure thyroid functions checked, they, you know, can refer to fertility clinics if there's an issue there. So, and so they take quite a holistic approach, but that's quite a, you know, a relatively small group of patients. We do have a, um, a, I was going to call it a study. I'm not sure it is a study, really. It's a database um, called BARD, and I wish I could remember what it stood for, but basically it's a database where the data comes from radiotherapy centers. And it's any woman who's received mediastinal radiotherapy gets fed into this database and it triggers um, a um, breast cancer screening uh, visits when they're due. Um, So that means MRIs of the breast um, seven years after treatment um, or mammography once a patient's over the age of 50 and their breast density is sort of reduced appropriately. So and so it triggers the appropriate breast cancer, enhanced breast cancer screening program that um, is recommended, uh, at least in the UK, for those patients. So that's quite a good thing. There's a, there's a study at the moment looking at screening for lung cancer in patients who've received radiotherapy. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a trial um, that, that's uh, ongoing in patients with Hodgkin. And the other thing I'm really interested in, actually, which is work being performed by a colleague of mine here in Oxford, a chap called David Cutter um, and his PhD student, Rebecca Shackett. And what they're doing is they're trying to come up with a decision tool for radiotherapy. Again, this is a radiotherapy question. And what, what this decision tool does is it takes um, the disease data. So where is the disease? You know, is it, is it in the mediastinum? Is it in the axilla for a particular patient? It also takes patient factors. So are they a man or a woman? Are they a smoker or not? How old are they? And it sort of feeds it into an algorithm and then spits out at the other end. What's, what would the benefit of radiotherapy be in terms of improvement in cure rate? And what would the risk be in terms of cardiovascular risk, breast cancer risk for that individual patient with the radiation fields that would be applied in that individual patient? So the idea is it would basically give you a bespoke, I love that word, a bespoke um, sort of risk benefit analysis for that patient to aid the clinician in their decision of radiotherapy or not for a patient with early stage. But one other point I would make about um, survivorship, which I think is really important, and I've come to realize more over the last few years, is we're very used to radiotherapy causing late effects, and it does, you know, and we need to be cautious and use small fields, etc. But I've come to more of an appreciation that chemo itself, you know, has significant late effects. And we, we know it, but I think we've been perhaps less good as oncologists and hematologists collecting our late effects data than the radiotherapists have been. They've been very good at it. We've perhaps been less good. 
But, you know, if you have 300 milligrams per meter squared of doxorubicin, that does quite significantly increase your risk of cardiovascular disease later in life. So actually, in our efforts moving forward, you know, reducing chemo burden appropriately, um, I think is a valid uh, research question, not just uh, targeting the radiotherapy as well. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. That's you. That's usually my biggest issue with escalated BRCAP. I mean, I think it's, uh, I, um, I feel that it's, and maybe you're right. Maybe, uh, uh, you know, I think it's with the proper supportive care, it's fine. And um, uh, by the way, um, by the time we finish, you'd have lost all of your radiation oncology followers. Uh, <laughs> actually, I didn't want to comment, but you labeled people over 40 as old. Yes, well, myself. <laughs> you lost all of that. And I haven't even uh, talked soccer with you. I'm going to talk one minute in soccer. <laughs> Before I do that, my last question, I promise. You've been very generous with your time. Oh, no, it's fine. But one of the things that's always not bother me, but puzzle me, is when we talk about the PET and response-adapted therapy, Graham, hmm. how scalable is this to the general practices? Because uh, let's face it, I think when you have somebody who is a radiographer and a very super specialist in PET, you, can, uh, you trust what they're saying. But once you actually ubiquitously ad advise everybody else, at least in the U.S., there are many most Hodgkin lymphoma patients are in community practices. Mm, 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 yeah. PET scan is not necessarily read by somebody who is, you know, could be a general radiologist, whatever it is. I guess my question is, are you in the UK in a scenario where you really trust the read? You have a centralized approach? Um, because imagine if you get somebody and you say, this is a Deauville score of uh, two and you're fine. And then you make a decision based on that versus a positive one. So how confident are we with the interpretation of PET, especially as we are making many decisions based on that? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And, you know, the trials we do in the UK are all centralized. There is a call of PET laboratory um, where the, the PETs are read by, uh, you know, only two or three people. You know, so and sure, that's great for a trial. You can trust the results for the trial. But how do you then... Uh, apply that to the real world setting. I mean, they, they have, so this is led by Sally Barrington, the core laboratory, and she has done some work comparing um, real world data with sort of core laboratory data, which was relatively reassuring, I have to say. More my concern though, is advances happen in PET, which we don't necessarily know about as clinicians, which can affect things. So the way a PET image is reconstructed um, can change. So there's there's something called time of flight. I mean, again, I, I'm not a pet radiologist, but I've learned this from my pet colleagues. Most, most original PET scans were reconstructed using this time of flight reconstruction, and that's how all the trials were done. But now there's something called Q-Clear, which basically makes a, a slightly avid node more avid. It, it sort of reduces your signal to noise ratio, which is lovely for the pet radiologist, but it may turn a Doval 3 into a Doval 4. So, uh, you know, I've, we've expressed concern actually about using Q-Clear here. So they've gone back to using time of flight, but, you know, hand on heart, how many people actually know how their PET scans are reconstructed before they're read? Probably not many people. So, yeah, I agree. I think there, it's like anything, there needs to be a sort of, you know, a consistent approach. There needs to be best practice that's disseminated, not just to the academic centers, but to community settings. And that's a, that is a work in progress. 
Well, um, you've been very generous. This was really a lot of fun. I hope that listeners really got to at least simplify Hodgkin. This is very, very concise. I mean, I think, honestly, I, 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 you did an amazing job in simplifying what has become a very complex disease. <laughs> Before I let you go, do you have any comments about the dreadful appearance of the British English soccer team in the Euro Cup. I'm just kidding. Actually, it was very fun on Twitter <laughs> with you and Toby talking about this. It was a lot of fun uh, trash talking. But this was my dad, by the way, is an um, he he has been the he's probably an avid um, English uh, soccer team fan for 40 years. He, he, he was broken. I, I felt so bad. I didn't know what to do. He <laughs> it was but really, it was the best opportunity for you guys to win the Euro Cup. It's, it's oh, I know, but we can't win. You know, we're just not, we, we can't handle success in, in, I've got to call it football, sorry, but we can't handle success in football in England. So we've got to lose. It's what we expect. It's our whole psyche is prepared for it. In fact, I said, you know, my children, I've got three children, um, <laughs> you know, t- um, 12, 10 and 8. And when it got to penalties, I said, Look, they will lose. I mean, you've got to prepare. They will lose. It was was a great team. And I just feel, um, you know, maybe maybe the World Cup. Yeah, they're just starting. That's right. They're just starting. But let me tell you, soccer is miserable in my house because my son is an avid Arsenal supporter. And I don't know how closely you follow the Premier League, but boy, oh boy. I'm a Manchester United no, oh, you're all right. <laughs> well, I'm all right for the first few weeks. Don't worry. We, we'll, we'll, you know, I mean. <laughs> yeah. I'm uh, West Ham myself, so we're doing all right. But, yeah. uh, you're, you're with uh, which team? You oh, West, West Ham, I support. Oh, we're playing this weekend. Right, yeah, yeah. And we're doing quite well. We were even top of the leaderboard two weeks we're, in. We're playing you this weekend. Yeah. Good, Absolutely. good. All right, well, get ready. I, I, <laughs> one all, that's what I predict. <laughs> thank you so much for your time really it's a pleasure i hope you have a beautiful friday night and enjoy yourself lovely thanks teddy all the best bye thanks everyone i appreciate you tuning in check out all of these podcast episodes on my youtube channel you can also visit my website at www.chadinabhan.com don't forget to let me know how i'm doing you can direct message me on twitter at chadinabhan or you can send me an email via my website www.chadinabhan.com I appreciate your support hopefully you are finding value in the variety of healthcare topics that we have And hopefully you really enjoyed this all things Hodgkin lymphoma episode. There's so much in this episode that I'm hoping that you uh, captured. Um, Dr. Collins is just simply amazing. Despite the fact that he is against Manchester United, we will overlook that. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying for Winston Churchill. And you know, it's fitting. I just interviewed a British investigator, and Winston Churchill said once, you can always count on Americans to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Hey, it is what it is. Until next time.